Hi everyone, it's delightful to be here again uh, and happy Memorial Day. I spent um, a couple of years in the South African Defence Force, had to, it was compulsory back in the day. So uh, I, I do resonate with those of you who are men and women in uniform and celebrate this day in a unique way. When you've been there, you understand, both you and your family understand uh, some of the exciting obstacles and challenges of being a man or woman in uniform. I married Meryl when she was 18, just before I went in to do my officer's course, and so she journeyed with me as a then 19-year-old. My love, why don't you just say hi and offer a greeting, because I know that uh, that always triggers huge amounts of love. That, that's being nice. <laughs> Oh, that's just the intro. <laughs> uh, you know, I was just struck in the second um, song in our worship time by who can stop the Lord Almighty. And I was drawn back to 15 when I went on a Methodist church camp. And this really good looking guy. I'm going to tell it like it is. The funny part of the story is he was giving the testimony, and I'd never heard about a personal walk with Jesus. And um, he said if anybody wanted to respond to the gospel, to come and speak to him. And, you know, all I remember was my heart was strangely warmed, and I knew that I was being drawn to something. I had no clue what it was. I didn't understand what a personal walk with Jesus would look like. But I just knew that I was being drawn to this God. And I went up to him and I said, yes, pray for me. And he led me in a prayer. And literally, my life turned completely around. I look back now, I mean, I'm 56. I look back and I think, gosh, I would have been on a completely different trajectory had I not, I didn't know what I was doing, but had I not just yielded and responded to the beautiful love of God. Who can stop the Lord Almighty? And I just, yeah, I felt to say if any of you here this morning were just drawn to something that you don't actually understand what it is, but your heart is strangely warmed, I want to say that's the love of Jesus. And you might make a significant decision today that literally changes your life from here on out. So just to encourage you with that. Thanks, my love. It's wonderful. Give her a round of applause. Be kind. All right, put on your seatbelts. We are going to go through a massive overview of Scripture, and we're going to land on one verse that uh, we're going to do some shadow boxing. Are you with me? We've got a video. I want you to watch carefully because I've got some questions for you at the end of it. Lights, please. Thank you. It takes a lot to row for the University of Cambridge, with months of training leading up to the highlight of the year, the BNY Mellon Boat Races. This year sees the women's crew race on the Thames Tideway course for the first time in its history, racing on the same stretch of the Thames as their male counterparts. To get there, each crew member has balanced academic and sports commitments, with early starts and intense training outings followed by their studies. There are sacrifices along the way, but the race gives something back, say those who train the athletes to perform. Let it run, let it run, put it in. Let it run, let it run, in. To achieve and to get into the blue boat or blondie or even the lightweights, you need to be very organised. 
It's a demanding academic schedule here and obviously the training programme requires land training in the gym and then water training out at Ely. So you have to be able to coordinate both aspects of your life and also on top of that probably have a little bit of a social life as well. And so that means you have to make choices all the time and you're having to think about what you're doing and to make good choices that mean you're going to be able to achieve the things you've prioritised. So they're very focused. It makes them very resilient because they are under an awful lot of pressure in terms of delivering a performance every time they turn up in the gym. Every time they are out training, they'd be required by the coaches to put in good performances. Attention. They are able to cope with those challenges as well of being viewed and tested, having instant feedback, it's not easy always being coached for an hour and a half and being required to improve and change what you're doing. You can't sit back. And that takes a certain sort of person to be able to deal with that. But actually, if you can, if you're resilient enough to take it, then you will improve. The skill is for the hands to be quite quick at the front. Now. OK, so what caught your attention? Anyone? Discipline. Discipline. Teamwork. teamwork. Who said teamwork? OK. What else? Come on, some guy voices. Precision. Precision. Sacrifice. Sacrifice. Say again? Teach. Teach. Yeah, building, absolutely. Say again? Diligence. Diligence. Commitment. Discernment. Coordination. Coordination. Now, I don't know much about um, this kind of sport. I love sport. Anything where there's movement and there's life and there's partnership and collaboration, I'm totally infatuated by. My daughter went to Oxford for a year to study C.S. Lewis and thought, well, she would do the whole uh, Oxford thing. And so she went to try out for a rookie rowing team, which she then joined. And uh, she said, you know, Dad, what was interesting, I think I'm the first person who's ever killed a duck on the Thames. <laughs> She said because she's strong, um, she can do this kind of stand-up push-up, I mean the, the hand push-up, you know the one um, headstand push-up, those of you who do CrossFit, she's a beast, she kind of does that thing. I wouldn't like to wrestle with her personally, uh, I still want to be her hero and, and that will change the relationship entirely. But, but she said we were rowing, it was five o'clock in the morning, we were on the Thames and the next minute I, as, as I pulled on my oar, she said I felt something and the next minute there was just feathers and bird flying past her. So, so she's broken a record of sorts. Um, uh, see, isn't it interesting that, that there's a selection process? You, you don't just arrive and say, hi, I'm, I'm on the team. There's a selection process whereby you are chosen to be part of that squad. It's not always the strongest it's not always the most gifted that joins a squad like that, but it's the one who is able to be molded together onto a team with other rowers. One who is prepared to have their style undone, in other words, to redo a style that matches the other uh, four or eight people who are rowing. Isn't it also interesting that uh, they have their back to the goal? You, you can't see it. It's called faith. What happens if the cox decides to go in the wrong direction? What happens if the cox decides to take you onto the river bank? What happens if the cox sends you in a direction to clash with one of the other boats? You see, you don't know. You have to fully trust your cox, who incidentally is not the best rower. 
In fact, oftentimes they are the tiniest person in the boat, but there is a trust and a respect for the cocks that they know what they do, and I will take my rhythm off them, and everyone takes their rhythm off them. I, I was watching uh, an interview with one of the British canoe, uh, rowers who, um, I can't remember, I think it was the 82nd Olympics, I can't remember, in 82, and, and they lost to the Italians by this much. That, which was less than half a second. And they, as the British rowers, went and critiqued, and all that happened was that there were a few strokes where they didn't hit the water at the same time. And they lost the gold and won the silver. And they rebooted the team, added in some new team members, and won the gold from the Italians by this much at the next Olympics. It's a remarkable picture of sacrifice. Um, part of what that young girl says is that she had to forfeit some family times. She had to forfeit some social times. She has to forfeit some of the things she would love to have done as a student to be a normal student. I'm guessing that means something like partying and having fun and going to bed late and, and playing video games till 3 o'clock in the morning. You probably can't do that if you want to beat Oxford and the Cambridge-Oxford rowing race, which has over 100 years tradition. The cox has to be trusted. The cox has to be depended on. The cox has to be the one that creates a rhythm whereby you hit the water at the same time. You keep your oar above the water at the same height. You roll the oar in the same direction. You pull at the same strength. The cox has to be able to discern on this given race who is weak today in the water and who is strong. Who is taking the boat in a, uh, the, the canoe or whatever it is, the boat in a particular way, and who can hold it steady? It's an exquisite picture. In fact, one of the American rowers said this, the key to a fast boat is balance. Balanced weight, timing, and pressure. It turns out that pulling as hard as you can without pulling together actually slows the boat down. Imbalanced power will veer the boat one direction and throw off the timing of the catch and the release. Uncontrolled straining at the oar can tip your weight left and right and toss the boat from side to side. A successful team, he says, pulls in perfect balance and with perfect timing. Isn't it amazing if we take these things for just a moment? I'm, I'm going to cycle back and land here. But isn't it amazing how with very simple application it makes so much sense in healthy church? The question I'm often asked as we travel around the world helping churches is, what is a successful church? And I think that's about the worst question imaginable. If the church is a body, you know, I never walk up, didn't you notice his biceps on his shirt? I, I think he bought a shirt that was tight. What do you think? <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, it's like, it's like holding the microphone, you know. Uh, yeah, I went hiking and I did 300 push-ups before breakfast. I mean, you know. But, but, but we don't say, oh, you got such a successful body. I mean, Kristen says that to him, but we don't say that. That would be, that would be uber weird if one of you girls came up to Matt and said, Matt, I love your leadership. You've got such a successful body as he makes the announcements. Now, none of us would do that, would we? We'd say, well, you have a very healthy body. We, we don't say because now they've got a gazillion kids. We, we don't say, oh, you've got such a successful family. We say, you've probably got a very healthy 
family. Healthy is a far better word when we dialogue around the church as family, as the ecclesia, the called out, those who have been selected to be in the, in the boat together for this time. So hold that thought in mind. Grab your Bibles, please, and I'm going to read a chunk of Scripture which will appear behind me. Acts 2, verse 36. Acts 2, verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This is the best healthy church passage in the Scriptures. Meryl and I are planting again and, uh, in Costa Mesa, and uh, it's kind of the way we roll. And I go back to this over and over again to say, God, what are we building? Is it healthy? Not is it successful. There's a formula that you can plonk down and get 100 or 200 or 300 people pretty quickly. It's a formula. It's enough of a church culture, Southern California, to attract 100, 200, 300, or 300 people who are interested, who want the newest, coolest, sexiest, hippest uh, but that's not healthy. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to him, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, healthy church, for the promise is for you and your children and those who are far away far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God, I just remembered it's behind me, I can't cheat. I can't read what I want to. My daughter, we didn't realize that uh, had marginal dyslexia, and so she would read and finish the sentences the way she wanted them to end. That's when we realized, hmm, it's a creative way of reading. And that's what we preachers do. We have a creative way of reading, and then we're exposed by that horrible thing behind us. <laughs> And with many other words, he promised, he bought, they bore witness and continued to exhort themselves, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who needed his word were baptized, and those who were added that day were about 3,000. He's talking about being swamped, walking into a room from one day to the next, saying, hmm, I don't know who's in the room. Well, they had 3,000 added overnight. And they devoted themselves, great Latin word, devotere, uh, it means from to something, I leave something, I give something up, I surrender something in order to embrace with greater passion and purpose something else. Devoted themselves to the four things, the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Is this a many wonders and signs church? And all who were believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Whenever I read a passage, I want to find the front end and back end. It's a bit like cheating. You read a novel, you read the introduction, you read the end, and you decide if you're going to read the middle. What's the front end? Gospel is preached, 3,000 are added. What's the back end? And God added to their number daily those who were being saved. It's an absolutely exquisite narrative. It's a narrative of growth. One author said, of growth, there are four ways to measure growth in a church. The first, he said, is numerical growth. It's not the only way, and it's not always the helpful way. Sometimes, dear friends, God can put the pause button on a community because we need to do community. We need to do life together. We need to literally smell each other's breath. 
We need to be there to hold each other, hug each other, laugh together, cry together, worship together. Can I encourage those of you who've never been in the early stages of a community development? It is fabulous. It is absolutely essential. We were telling someone the other day, when we planted our first church in South Africa back in the day, we could not grow beyond about 200. Now, I'm embarrassed to tell you a true story, but that was in the late 80s, early 90s, and Benny Hinn was throwing his white suit jacket around. So I prayed. I only admitted this much later. You know, when you get old, you get courageous. But I used to walk the streets of Durban, South Africa, praying, God, I will do anything to grow the church. What does that tell you about me? I'm an arrogant, egotistical, narcissistic pastor. (laughs) Then, now I'm humble, and I'm tender, and I'm weak, and... And I said, Lord, I'll do anything. Now, remember, Durban is the capital of South Africa surfing-wise. So we were in board shorts. We were in sandals. We were in T-shirts. I said, I would even wear a white suit. I was that desperate to look good. I would do anything to grow. But God pushed the pause button. He said, you're not ready to grow. Your community's not ready to grow. That's it. One day I got a phone call uh, from a friend. He said, listen, I have an American in uh, in town. Would you have him preach? Now, I never had a stranger in the pulpit, ever. But for some bizarre reason that day, I said, I would love him. And I put down the phone. I thought, Vinant, what were you thinking? You're breaking all your own rules. Anyway, so Terry Chris from Dallas, word of faith guy, and I'm not a word of faith guy, comes big voice. We're in the school hall. We're running at a few hundred we have about one, we had normally kind of one to ten groups of people in the newbies class. And in the middle of his sermon, he stops and he said, the Lord says, thus saith the Lord. I'm thinking, oh, here we go. Uh, you know, we're getting a Texas prophecy here. <laughs> and he says, and he said, you have been growing in ones and tens, but the Lord says, from this day forward, you will grow in fifties and hundreds. So immediately we had an elders meeting and agreed. This was a word from the Lord, you know. Um, You don't even have to discern it. It, it, it lines. But the incredible thing was the next newbies class, we had 52 people. And it never went below that for over a decade. Between 50 to 120 people every time we had a new class because God said it's time. It's never convenient for us. It's never, oh, well, that's a good time to grow. It's always convenient from God's point of view for such a time as this. Position yourself, strap yourself down, a little bit like Matt and Kristen having this little baby join their world. I don't know all the dynamics, but this I do know. God has unique ways, and He can inconvenience us if there are people who are broken, limping, and hurting. He wants to add into a community. It never comes at a convenient time. Does that make sense to you? That's what this bookend is. God adds 3,000, the leaders are stubborn, we can't cope what's happening, and then God really messes with them, and He adds daily those who are being saved. A healthy church is where there's new life. Now, can I speak to those of you who have been around a long time? It is remarkably inconvenient. When God adds people we don't like, we just don't want, but I'm not sure we have the right to that, do we? I'm not sure we have the right to say, God, how dare you send people and mess with our little cheers community. I want to go to a place where everyone knows my name. I am the old timer. I've been here forever. Don't you know I have a position of respect and influence? And suddenly all these other types that God in His kindness, His goodness, His generosity brings into our world. That's what healthy church looks like.
The second thing that I find absolutely fabulous is the fact that the gospel, and I just have to handpick a few words because I've got one little verse I want to get to, and that is uh, forgiveness. Do you know how exquisite that word is? I'm not sure we marinate ourselves well enough in it. I cooked some organic chicken on the barbecue the other day and marinated it and came out so tender and so delightful. This is one of those marinating words. You're an old crusty steak. You know, you, 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 you're a little chewy, a little, little, uh, nya, 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 nya. Um, a little bit of marinade can just help make it a little bit more palatable. I said to Meryl this morning, Meryl's a therapist, so I said to her, babe, what's the difference between um, uh, guilt and shame? And she knew instantly, it irritated me. She should have thought, let me just think about that. But she knew instantly, she said, guilt is I've done a bad thing. Shame is I am bad. See, see, the gospel just deals with that instantly. From day one, the gospel proclaims by trumpet blast, I am here, says Jesus, to take care of your guilt and your shame. See, guilt we can cope with. Guilt that moment, I shouldn't have turned on the computer and watched pornography. Oh God, can you forgive me? It's almost like we can deal with guilt quickly. But shame lingers, because shame fundamentally is attached to your personhood. It's who I am. And the enemy loves that. He sits on your shoulder and just whispers over and over again, oh, it's such a shame. It's such a shame. It's such a shame. You haven't done a bad thing. You are bad. And so we come into a context of worship like we did this morning, and you feel you have no right to lift up your arms. You have no right to lift up your voice. You have no right to let your heart leap by the wonder and the forgiving power of the living Christ. So what you do is you keep your hands in your pocket, and your heart is shut down, and your eyes look at your feet because you think, who could, what kind of God would possibly accept someone just like me? Now, the forgiveness spoken of here is an all-inclusive one. The truth be told, if somehow time sits still and all of our lives could be shown on a screen, there wouldn't be a person in this room who would not be either embarrassed, awkward, or shamed by a moment or an event or a lifestyle in our inner sanctum. There isn't a person here who would say, oh, please don't show that scene. Please, please, please. But he saw, the God of all creation saw, the God of all redemption saw, he saw that moment, that scene, that, 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 that played out thing that shames you, that gives you a traveling companion that beats you down into ever-increasing darkness. He saw, and he says of that, I will forgive all of your sins the sins you've committed and the sins that others have committed against you. It's called expiation, the sins that others have committed against you. Ladies and gentlemen, if I just spoke, I was praying this morning. Meryl was not well last night, so we're up for a few hours, and I was just lying in bed praying, and I thought, if I say nothing more than he can deal with your shame, I will be so happy. If nothing else, I'm not good enough. My God can't possibly love me. He can't possibly bless me. I don't deserve his very great reward. Nothing of who I am warrants his deep, sublime affection. I love being a dad.
Nothing that makes sense about my heavenly father in my very limited understanding, but being a dad. And the thing I've loved with my three kids, two girls, and then my boy came a little bit later, it's just coming home in the afternoon. And my family never, oh, dad's home. It's like, whatever. No, dad's home. And I would hear the pitter-patter of my little girl's feet on the wooden floors of our Durban home. And I'd pull up in the back, hear the pitter-patter, and as they got to the door, invariably we'd play the flirting game. They would kind of come and big eyes roll and then shriek and then run away and I've got to run off. What is it with you girls? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, honestly, what is it? We've got to run, exhaust ourselves. And then the moment comes with his hugs and his cuddles and then they'd put their feet on my feet and put their arms around me and we'd hold and we'd hug because I didn't say, okay, I just want to know, did you, did you fight today? Did you fight today? Did, did you backchat your mom? Did, did, did you not tidy your room? See, my, my love was not contingent on behavior, performance, or shame. It was because I loved them, and that is all that matters. And if my love that is so imperfect is embracing, how much greater my Heavenly Father who loves me doesn't say, okay, Chris, let me just check you out. Oh, it hasn't been a good week this week. The worship, uh, I don't know, man. I don't know. I think you should bow your head. I think you should put your hands in your pockets. I think you should just stand around because you really don't deserve my love. He says, come boy, it's been a tough week for you, hasn't it? Nothing about this week wants you to lift your heart and hands in worship. Nothing, not one thing. But boy, I love you. I, I watched you this week. I saw you stumble. I saw you fall. I saw you fall short. I saw you cuss. I saw you give the guy the middle finger on the freeway. I saw all of that. No, 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 not in this church. I'm talking about other churches, other people, <laughs> other, other Christians out there. I'm just using a generic example. I'm sorry, it's not relevant here. But, 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 but God says, I saw all that. Now come and run. Come and run and jump into my arms and let me hold you. Shame is a brutal foe because it never leaves you, not day or night. Anyway, how much time do I have left? Let me talk a little bit. I was going to do more, but I, I want to talk a little bit about this verse. Are you still with me? Yes. All right. I want to speak to you just about this verse, verse 42, because I really could get stuck. There's just so much beauty in this. And all who believed were together. Now, you know what happens when we read this? Depending on your theological bias, if you're a little bit more charismatic, you would love the previous verse. And all and all are or, or how do you say it? Or, came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. Oh, the charismatics love that. See, Chris, a healthy church, signs, wonders, and miracles? Yes, of course. Those of you who are socially aware love the next one. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. Oh, social justice. Oh, these rich people in Thousand Oaks, they should sell it all and give it to the poor. See, so our theological bias gets us to ignore the most sublime verse, I think, which is the one strapped right, it's the hamburger, it's struck right in there, and it says, and all who believed were together. That is an exquisite word, because it's a word that reflects our heavenly Father, our heavenly Son, I mean the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's the together peace. Do you know it's the word that is stronger in spiritual warfare than almost any other word? 
Think about it for a moment. Here's Meryl Diane. My baby, just stand for a moment. I just feel like hugging you. Now, do you know the enemy will do anything to separate us, won't he? Now, isn't your heart warm because I'm hugging my wife? And aren't you, ladies, saying, gee, I wish my husband jumped out of the pulpit and hugged me, you see? <laughs> All right? And you, husband, say, gee, I wish my wife was affectionate to me. Because intrinsically and intuitively, we know together is good. But it just cost me. Meryl would love to sit at the back. She's introverted and shy. She would sit at the back, but she's sitting in the front. It's costing her. I'm preaching really well, so it's costing me to get off the pulpit, and now, <laughs> and now all of you are looking at Meryl saying, geez, I wish she was preaching. You know what I mean? It costs us. Together is a sublime word. Together is a, a huge word. It's a spiritual warfare word. One will put a thousand to flight, two, ten thousand. And so for a moment, we segue into this space of them rowing together, and suddenly it makes sense that God doesn't put us, I'm not sure we even choose a church. I think a church chooses us. I think God looks, and He says, I've got this boat. This is the race they have to row in, and I'm going to choose the best for that boat for that race. We think, oh, I don't know, I'll go to that, oh, great kids ministry, I'm going to that church. Really? Really? Oh, no, no, I, I really like this pastor. I'm going to go to that church. No, there is a selection process, a divine assignment piece, I think, and you can disagree, where God puts us into boats and we are taught to row together. We have an assignment. We've got an 8,000-meter race to row, and we dearly and desperately need each other. And so together is this exquisite word where God shapes us and molds us and irritates us. It's so fascinating as I've researched rowing. And they talk about teamwork and building together and the early mornings, five o'clock in the morning, and they don't want to be there. They don't want to do that. They've got everything else in, the, in their mind. You know, I just want to be sleeping more. And then the, the early bouncers have had their three coffees already to row and the others are dragging themselves there. And we need each other and we support each other and we uphold each other. Together is a huge word. And I think so much of this early church's health was understood by this sense of togetherness. This book, called The Relational Soul, has been a fascinating read for me. The one author is a counselor. The other author is a spiritual director. And um, the relational soul idea is basically, or at least in part, that we are forged together for community. And what I want to do is I just want to walk you through a few things that I think are incredibly helpful for us to understand. Anthem Thousand Oaks. God has a very specific assignment for you. It's not better or worse than any other church in the valley. It's not better or worse than any other church around, but it has a very specific assignment. And from my understanding of the text, God brings us together into little family units for this assignment. Community is, is so much part of understanding our Christian walk. In this book, it says co community was, was uh, fundamental to their understanding of God. They understood community as the manifest extension of the divine. Let me rush ahead here for the sake of time. So what these guys did, and this is where I want to walk you down quickly. I've got 15 minutes left. We'll, we'll go quickly. Is identified the uniqueness of Christian community. Can I just speak honestly for a moment as a dad? There is a book out called Church Refugees. 
Two sociologists have studied why people have left the church. Not the millennials. When they get 18, they leave the church and don't come back. That's a heartache. But there's a different heartache, these two sociologists argue, and that is that people are leaving church at about 30 to 60 and not coming back. Love Jesus, have no issues with Jesus, but are peeling off. So fascinating a read. Not a great, not a well-written book, I don't think, but rich in information. And one of the things that they say is people are finding, my word, surrogate community. Oh, no, no, I've got great community at the baseball club. My kids play. We have barbecues every Friday night after the game. We hang out for a few beers. It's great. It's so real. When I go to church, we sit in rows. It's not as real as at the, or at the pub, at the club. You know what? We've got great community there. But I think that word together calls us to a far more wondrous narrative. And in this book, it helps because they identify why Christian community is exquisite. Here are a few of their pointers. The first is this, that we are both particular and peculiar. I quote, In community we learn what it means to live out the story of redemption. In the common city, the Spirit of God resides, or church I think that's meant to be, the Spirit of God resides encouraging teaching and guiding its members into a deeper love for God and others. It is impossible to foster soulful relationships without a real commitment to a particular community of faith. We learn to love by loving real people. We need life together in a particular community. And, and I want to say to us, folk, the wonder of together is that God puts us, according to these authors, in a very particular community. Here's my appeal to you. Suck the marrow out of it. My son just graduated a year ago from high school. We sent him to a private school, and um, to be honest, if he was here today, he'd acknowledge he didn't suck the marrow out of it. Joined the surf club, joined soccer, grew his hair long, and was cool. So at the end of it, we said, my boy, did you really suck the marrow? And he looked and he said, no, not really. He wanted to be cool. Don't infringe on me. Don't demand. Don't expect me to commit to anything. I want to surf when I want to surf. I want to play soccer when I want to play soccer, and I'll get decent grades. See, it's almost that millennial mindset that erases this whole high idea of a particular community. And I want to say to you, I've got a particular wife possibly could have married. She could have married more guys than I could have married girls, but, but I probably could have married someone else. She definitely could have married someone else, but at some point in time, that sober sense of God brings Chris and Merrill together at a silly little Methodist youth camp where I met her, I shared the gospel with her, led her to Christ, water baptized her, baptized her in the Holy Spirit, and put a ring on her finger and thought, this one was too good to get away. We, we're doing this. It's a particular partnership. And so too, when God joins you together, He puts a particular partnership together. The second thing that I want to say related to this is it's a peculiar church. We, we're, not, we're not like the world. We eat together at our little community. We can. We're small. We just started. We're 10 months in. And we never meet without eating. So tonight, we'll eat Asian food together. It's, it's exquisite. We, I want rich in flavor, rich in color and texture. I want to teach generosity through food. But there is something peculiar about us. The world's got to sit up and say, what is it that's different about you guys? Not because you judge homosexuals, 
Not because you voted Trump or didn't, whatever your political bias. No, no. What is amazingly peculiar about you? My, how they love each other. My, how they row together in unison, in sacrifice. They go on to say, the church is mysterious. And I don't know why it was so dang obvious. It says a healthy community finds ways to point to the mystery of God indwelling the church as well as the mystery of who we are as the body of Christ. And folks, that's why we're not like any other community. We could be, you know, like uh, Doctors Without Borders or um, some social work. Doing. I love and respect all of them. But, but the togetherness that we have is the mystery of God dwelling in us. You are being transformed. Do you know how exquisite that is? That, that our mutual faith leaks into each other's hearts. Like you, our marriage is wobbled. Possibly three times we could have gotten divorced. But a number of things held us on course. The one was the dream that when we were in our 80s, we'd walk hand in hand on the beach, reflecting on how good God has been. That was a strong thing. Honestly, even in my darkest times, I thought, why did I marry Meryl? Why did Meryl marry me? I have no idea. Even in that moment, there was this overwhelming sense of us walking together in our 80s, remarking on just how good God was. But there's another piece, community. Meryl had Beulah when we were, we were so young and ignorant and insecure and vulnerable when we got married. We had no hope in Hades of succeeding. I was arrogant, loud, brash, strong, confrontational. I was your nightmare. And Meryl had a friend called Beulah. Beulah was about 15 years older, 20 years older. And um, community. And I said, Meryl, you can tell Beulah anything. I have no secrets with Beulah. And she did. <coughs> she shouldn't have. No, I'm joking. <laughs> I'm totally stoked she did. And one day, two little kids, Meryl wasn't coping, church plant, I'm flying around ministering, and, and Meryl just described to Beulah, this is hard, and Chris isn't around, and he's sometimes a pain in the butt, and the little girls and the kids and the church is growing and demands more of him, and Beulah sat and listened to her out, and she said, Meryl, here's the deal, and I want to represent the conversation well. It's only going to get harder. It's only going to get harder. <laughs> See? It's only going to get harder. See, so that, that, that's the language of a friend. Better the wounds of a friend than the kisses of an enemy. And what community does in this mysterious thing is it allows God to break in amongst us. It's also messy, and I'm going to bring those two things together for just a moment. It is messy. We irritate each other, don't we? The one minute Matt's a superstar, the next minute, oh, he's just so painful when he preaches. Why does he always have to say that thing? Why does he always want to talk about money or talk about this or community? I'm so tired of, of course you are. Do you honestly not think you irritate the heck out of him sometimes? It's called messy church. It's real people finding God together in harmony and friendship and forgiveness. That's what makes it so exquisitely wonderful. We don't meet like billiards on a table and then rush off to our own little corners. We do it together, arm in arm, shoulder to shoulder, tear to tear, meal to meal, communion table to communion table. Together, we, rough, we ride the rough road of messy Christianity. Please let that leak into your heart. Those of you who've been through two or three churches and they've been brutal, I mean, they tell me every, Americans now are now moving church every, approximately every two years. Oh, 
I think the enemy hasn't got much right as he's got that right. Imagine if I changed my wife every two years. My kids, um, when my boy was pushing, I said to him the other day, T, I want to thank you. In your teenage years, you really improved my prayer life. <laughs> and he said, you're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't, I don't say, okay, no, I don't, I don't want that son. I want the other son. I don't want the son who's just chilling and surfing. You know, no, let me, let me have the one who's firebrand and entrepreneur and let's go and take the world and let's change it all. That's, that's what I understand. Not like, yo, dad, what's up? You know, it's like, uh, I want another, day. Can, I have a, can I have another version? I, I want a version like me. And then we would kill each other. <laughs> see, see, it's messy. It's mysterious. God dwelling in his church. God doing sovereign things. God bringing people together. God reconciling. God redeeming. But it's also messy where we have to cope with our differences and our irritations. And they are never reasons to part ways. Are you with me? You've got room for one more? They go on to say that the mystery and wonder of the church and its togetherness is surrendering and serving. Surrendering. It is, folks. You know, when I watched that, I've watched it a few times now, and I've just watched other things. The over, the, there was a scene in that that intrigued me. It was a train station at early morning with no one there. And I thought, why did they put that there? It wasn't particularly aesthetically pleasing. It didn't seem to fit with the narrative of the production, but there it was. And I thought it's because those students, like my daughter, had to get up. She said, Dad, we would get to the Thames and she said, sometimes we'd have to break the ice to put the boats in. And she said, Dad, it didn't matter how thick the gloves were or the beanie we put on or how we wrapped and robed ourselves, it didn't matter because we were going to be cold. And you'd sit there waiting for the cocks to call, okay, to whatever the language is, I don't know. All right, let's start rowing. And she said, Dad, those first few strokes, everything in your body was screaming, don't do this to me. What were you thinking? You're an idiot. Why are you on the Thames, 5 o'clock in the morning on the winter's morning when it's just dark and cold and the wind is blowing up the Thames Valley? It doesn't make sense. And ladies and gentlemen, that that's what surrendering is all about. It's where we inconvenience ourselves for the sake of the team. It's where we say, for the sake of the team and us rowing together, I will do the inconvenient. What happened the next verse? And I know it's a much broader conversation, but they sold everything. Not a tithe. Everything. There were no needy amongst them. Acts 2, Acts 4. It meant something. I'm not suggesting we all go and do it, although I think Matt would be delighted. I'm not suggesting that. There's a theological context to that, which we can't go into now. But the point is, dear friends, if we are selected to row on this team, then there is a sacrifice and a surrender to make it happen. It's an incredible privilege that God puts us into community to do life together. Meryl I said, we've just planted. We're the only couple in our 50s. If any of you in your 50s want to come and have an adventure, welcome to join us. Obviously, if Matt's happy for you to drive two hours one way. The average age is 22. We're the only family in the church with a house. Everything happens. We've just bought a new house. Do you know how the floors have been damaged and stained and chairs that have scratched our beautiful uh, wooden floors. I think they're expensive. Well, they, they look expensive. <laughs> Do you know how my sink has been dinged and our kitchen counter has been chipped? 
too hard. We cook most of the food. Well, Meryl cooks most of the food. <laughs> but you see, when you look beyond that, and you see those young people who are coming in who've never known healthy family, Sam's parents were addicts. Parents died. She lived as a little girl, 12, 13, 14, in cars. Friends' couches. She never knew normal, whatever normal may be. Do you know what a joy it is for her to come into our home and to sit around our table and to lean on our couch and to open our fridge? And they do. <laughs> fridge is free game. Drink my wine. They don't touch the scotch. <laughs> hey, you've got to draw a line somewhere. Come on now. You've got to draw a line somewhere. Are you with me, folks? Do you know the joy to see Sam's face come alive? Because Meryl and I said, and this isn't to boast, it's just the example that comes to mind, is that we open up our home and open up our hearts and let them slouch on our couch and eat our food and scratch our floors and ding our sink. All of that matters because of who they are and the mystery of what God wants to do in their lives. How dare I say, oh, it's so inconvenient. Where will Sam learn family? David was adopted from Mexico. Beautiful boy, great soccer player. Where will they understand family? Will's dad got fired from a number of churches. Where will they see family if we are not prepared to have our home inconvenienced, our floor scratched, our sink dinned, and our, uh, and our fridge emptied? It's the beautiful mystery of the church when we say, yes, Jesus. And the wonder is, folks, we can all do it. Togetherness is not for the few, not for the professionals. You have to go to Talbot and Fuller to become a together. Now it's for every one of us who says the mystery and messiness of the church I'm in, who sees the sacrifice and surrender and says I'm in, who sees the particular and the peculiar and says I'm in. That's a church worth living in and a church worth pouring yourselves out. You know, I close with this comment. Thank you for being so gracious to me. We're in America, it's the only country in the world that we are losing. Every other country in the world, Christianity is on the increase except here. And I've pondered on that long and hard. And I want to say two things as we land. Number one is this. If we preach a captivating Christ and we present a compelling community, that will reverse if we preach a Christ that has no cost, oh no, no, it doesn't have to cost you anything. Just come twice a month, 1.8 times, that's as often as people come to church in America, you're fine. No, that's not compelling. People are leaving the church because that's the norm. What is compelling is five o'clock in the morning when we break ice and we gloved up and we hooded up and we start rowing. That's compelling. Captivating Christ who loves us, who we prepare to give ourselves for, and a community that lives its way through the messiness and the mystery of it all. Let's pray together. What a great community this is, precious Jesus. What a great assignment you've given her that she will live for reasons beyond herself, not just here in Thousand Oaks or in the valley.
but splashing ever-increasing waves into Camarillo, into Ventura, into Denver, evermore, evermore, evermore. Thank you that this is a compelling community full of mystery and messiness, particular and yet peculiar, everyone being called a higher call of surrender and sacrifice. You're amazing, and we thank you for that privilege. Thank you for what you're doing in this amazing church.